K-A-L-W. You don't have to know anything. You don't have to know the words to the songs because we're making it up the entire time. The Bay Area is home to a tradition of improvised group singing. I feel like the community is more important really than the music that's made. That the music will come from a real dedication to community. Today, finding human connection through song. Then we'll explore how one local performer teaches people how to go deep and explore their cultural roots through music. Contained within that rhythm is that longing and desire for freedom and connection. And we ask, what can you tell about someone from the way they sound? She said, I want you to sound so good that if I put you on stage behind a curtain, everyone would swear you were white. Who we are and how we express ourselves. I'm Hanat Baba, and this is Cross Currents. The Bay Area is a culture-rich place. There's a lot going on, but people can still feel disconnected sometimes, or even lonely. Today, we start with a story from our series, Culture Keepers, profiles of people who maintain and create traditions in the Bay Area. I was very much fascinated by bells and lights and whistles. It's my role to learn it well and protect it and keep it. Alors, je vais faire l'explication en anglais. Soyez tolérant. Just the energy and the drive that they have, like the future is looking fucking golden. KLW's Cheryl Kaskowitz introduces us to a group of singers working to help people get connected through circle singing, a form of group vocal improvisation. Here's Cheryl. It's a Wednesday night at a church in Berkeley, and the singer David Worm is standing on a wooden stage. He's testing microphones while his sound engineer's daughter plays nearby. It may sound like there's a drum kit up there, but it's just Dave. He's known as an expert beatboxer, imitating the sound of percussion with his voice. It's a little live. It's a little loud. Yeah. Oh, how are you? Been here before? Yes. Good. All right. You're returning. Out in the lobby, Phoebe Ackley stands behind a folding table, greeting people as they enter. This is a monthly event called Community Circle Sing, and both Dave and Phoebe have been helping to organize them in the East Bay for more than 20 years. Circle singing brings people together to sing in the round and improvise together. It's something that challenges you to be in the moment, to sing in community, be vulnerable, Trust that you have something to give to everyone. By 7 o'clock, about 30 people have arrived. Dave starts singing, and people take the hint, forming a circle around him and joining him in song. Circle singing is you create a repeating musical phrase. You give it to a section or to everybody. He points to a few people and gestures for them to repeat what he just sang. And you build on that. So you create this musical motor, if you will. And then on top of that, you lay harmonies, you lay syncopated things that add to the sort of, to the dance, to the musical path of what you're creating. 
And uh, so you had percussive elements, words. Oh, here it's come since I wrote my The singers stand together in a circle, but the music itself also feels circular because there's no beginning, middle, and end. It's almost trance-like. Almost every culture has some tradition of group singing, going back thousands and thousands of years. But this particular kind, circle singing, has more recent roots here in the Bay Area. It all started with the pioneering vocalist, Bobby McFerrin. He's known for the huge range of sounds that he can make using just his voice. His music can't really be pinned down into one genre, but he's most famous for a song that became a pop sensation in 1988. Don't Worry, Be Happy was the first a cappella song to hit number one on the Billboard charts, and it earned Bobby McFerrin three Grammy Awards. The singer David Worm first saw Bobby McFerrin perform years before this song made it big. And it was sort of one of those epiphanal kind of moments. And I realized that there's a whole lot more that I can do emotionally with my voice. And I thought if I could sing like that, it would be amazing. Dave auditioned for a new vocal group that Bobby McFerrin was starting, called Voicestra, named for an orchestra of voices, without instruments. The idea was to explore group vocal improv beyond what one singer could do on stage. A few years later, Bobby wanted to take group improvisation to an even larger scale. He organized a 24-hour group improvising event at San Francisco's Grace Cathedral. He invited professional singers to help him lead, and anyone could join in, taking shifts, singing around the clock. It was amazing. It was a, it was a marathon. And at that time, he was very popular, so the church was full of people. And that's where circle singing was born, an improvisational art erasing the line between audience and performer. Watch the ending now. Watch for the ending now. I feel like the community is more important, really, than the music that's made. That the music will come from a real dedication to community. <laughs> this goes beyond, like, a kumbaya sense of togetherness. There are studies that show tangible health benefits from social connection. It's an elusive feeling these days, and it's at the heart of what circle singing is about. Here's Phoebe again. Singing in community, it's the most accessible way because you don't have to know anything. You don't have to know the words to the songs because we're making it up the entire time. At these Wednesday night events in Berkeley, Dave invites participants to come to the middle of the circle and lead the group. Sometimes it takes some cajoling. Don't be afraid. <laughs> it's, not, it's not as hard as you may imagine. It's actually quite simple. You sing a note and you follow it with another note. It's that easy, really. The first one to step in is a young guy with floppy dark hair. His song builds until he's punctuating his melodies with stomps and he's leaping into the air. After singing together with different people taking turns in the middle, 
Dave ends the last song in breath and silence. This breath, this thing that you possess, this beautiful, resonant thing that each one of us has, it's powerful. Take it. Try this at home. (laughs) And come back in a month. We'll see you there. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. People linger in the church afterwards. It seems like after all this communing through singing, now they just want to talk to each other for a while. On my way out, I stopped to say goodbye to Phoebe, who is back at the table in the lobby. She says circle singing has made her a better listener. When you're in this world for a while, it really starts to click, and, and then you start to hear other things so more acutely. It's really, it's, it's a brilliant thing. As I leave the church, I wonder if just a few hours immersed in circle singing could have had an effect on me. Because walking down Durant Avenue, it really seems like the crickets are singing to each other louder than usual. In Berkeley, I'm Cheryl Kaskowitz for Cross Currents. Cheryl is a fellow in our audio academy. You can find more stories like that one at klw.org slash crosscurrents. You're listening to Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Hanat Baba. Someone else who believes in the power of song to connect and lift up communities is Oakland singer and vocal activist Melanie Damore. It's what drives her work as a performer, songwriter, and teacher. Blessed with what she herself has called a very, very, very low voice, she's made a name for herself through music that blends African-American folk with other forms like spirituals and soul. Here she's singing at Trinity Church in New York. Amazing grace, how sweet the Melanie trains people on how to find their own voices as a tool for preserving culture and community. She spoke with former Sights and Sounds host Jen Chien in 2016. Can you explain to me what you mean when you say vocal activist? Well, one of the things that, that is part of my work is that I create spontaneous choirs with people. And that is to help activate people's inner voice because we're kind of living in a time where there are a lot of people who don't have a voice. And it's really... And you mean that literally as well as... Literally figured. So figured. Uh-huh. Exactly. And I think that people are hungry, really, really hungry to do things together. 
and being able to create spaces where folks can come together and sing. You bring whatever it is into the room, and you just throw your head back and sing, and we do it together. And it's a way of being able to hold, hold each other up. I mean, you have a very varied background. Mm-hmm. You grew up partly in Alaska. Mm-hmm. You were born in New York mm-hmm. City. Your yeah. parents formed the first black theater company One in Alaska. One of the Alaska. first black One theater of... companies back in the day. Yeah. You've lived in Texas and New yep. Mexico. Mm-hmm. And before you became a vocal artist, I found out that you were in a convent. You yeah. drove a forklift. You were yeah. an actor. You were a chef. Yeah. So <laughs> that's a lot of different stuff. So yeah. tell me about how you found your way into singing and into the life that you're in now. Well, I've, I've always been singing. My, both my mother and father, brilliant vocalists. My mom was one of the first African-American women actually offered a scholarship to Juilliard way back in the day. But I'm very much like my mother. She didn't want to be confined by a conservatory, so she just wanted to sing. I always knew from the time I was about four or five that music was going to be my path. I knew it. My mom knew it, too. So you're a founding member of the Bay Area favorites, Linda Tillery and the Cultural Heritage Corps. Right. I, I am, I'm not with the band anymore, but I was with them for 18 years, and I was a founding member of that band. And let me tell you, Linda Tillery, one of San Francisco's treasures and really one of the best vocalists in the country. And to be able to sing with her was, <laughs> it was a trip. We had so many wonderful adventures, and it was just amazing. And to do African-American roots folk music... And when we started the band, we were, you know, five uh, African-American women, percussion-driven ensemble who threw down. Baby, we could throw down on some serious rhythm and drums and stick pounding. And, you know, yeah, we, it was an amazing experience. And so how, how do you think that has um, influenced the music that you make oh, now? Oh, good Lord. Are you kidding? Changed my life. It was an extraordinary experience because we were doing the music that is the roots of all American music. Music of the Gullah South Sea Islands, slave songs, uh, all of the music that is really the seeds of everything that we know as American music. So So probably some listeners have not heard of Gullah Stick Pounding. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what that is? There's a whole series of islands around Georgia and South Carolina and Florida called the Gullah Sea Islands. And these particular islands, a lot of people have no idea that they're there, first of all. But the Gullah people have their own language. And most of the folks that ended up on these little islands out there, they were taken from around the area of Sierra Leone. And a lot of folks think that they did... And you mean to become slaves? Yeah, they were were taken Mm -hmm. and became enslaved. But they were taken from Sierra Leone. Cash crops on the sea islands was rice. The folks in Sierra Leone knew how to grow rice. So they were, these things are very specific. People think that it was known, that there was a plan as mm-hmm. to where people were taken from. But one of the things that's so extraordinary about the Gullah people, and it's so extraordinary about human beings, is that you have these people that come with many, many different languages, and you got to figure out a way to make community out of no way. Created a language, a way to be able to express and to hold on to your own true identity in a situation that looks at you like you're not anything. Mm. And I think for me, with the gullistic pounding, you know, the drums were taken away there, but all the houses were built on stilts because it floods. So they would use sticks and mortars and pestles in their feet and turn the whole place into a drum. And it's a particular rhythm that is used when the uh, gullah rhythm. 
And my feeling about this and why I want people to learn this is because, to me, contained within that rhythm is that longing and desire for freedom and connection. When the sun and that how do you hold on to yourself in a situation that doesn't even think you have a self? I can hear the and so I do these big stick-pounding workshops with people to talk about community and how, how when we are connected within a group, that we are responsible to hold each other's stories for those times when we forget. And I pray for peace And I look to the light When the sun goes down I pray for peace. That was vocal activist Melanie Damore speaking with Jen Chien in 2016. I be the not just sing the music. I This is Cross Currents. I'm Hanat Baba. As we just heard, self-expression can uplift communities. But what if certain spaces expected you to sound and speak a certain way? You might end up changing how you talk to fit in. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hey, what's up? Hey! What's up? Hi. Hey, how are you? Hello. Hey, girl. What's going down with you? Linguists call that code switching. It was originally used for people who would switch between two different languages, like English and Spanish. But the term has evolved to embrace the tone, accents, and the inflections we use when talking to anyone. Many of us do it, including me, but even presidents do it. Here's President Obama back in 2009 at the NAACP convention. We need to go back to the time, back back to the day when Parents saw somebody, saw some kid fooling around, and it wasn't your child, but they'll whoop you anyway. Although the crowd cheered the president on that day, not everyone embraced his code switching. Fox News didn't appreciate it. But what was going on with the accent that he was affecting? I thought that was just weird. So how do our voices define us to others? To find out, reporter Leela Day spoke with Joshua Johnson in 2015, who at the time was a morning newscaster for KQED. Growing up, I heard plenty of jokes about the way I spoke. Listen to how you talk, like a white girl. Who do you think you is? You sound white when you're on the phone. But I couldn't help the way I sounded. It's a default voice, just how I speak. You see, where I grew up in Las Vegas, there were two types of black kids in school. Those who hung out only with other black kids and those who bounced back and forth between black and non-black friends. I was in the second group. And with all that switching back and forth, my voice switched too, and it still does. 
like when I'm on the phone with my sister. Girl, you better act somebody. Uh-uh. I do not know what you are talking about. It's not something I'm always conscious of. Sometimes it just sort of happens. Yeah, he came in looking all crazy, acting all crazy, talking all crazy. I was like, "Uh uh-uh, you better back off. Now, as an adult, I have fun with it. All up in my Kool-Aid, you don't even know the flavor. But as a kid, it wasn't always this way. Finding my voice was, well, just painful. At school, being told I sounded white meant only one thing. I wouldn't be eating my corn dog and tater tots at the black kids' lunch table. But that was then. Nowadays, in some schools, corn dogs and tater tots have been replaced with tofu dogs and a green salad. It got me wondering if the conversation among teens may have changed too. So I went to a place where I thought I might find some black teens who've been accused of talking white, the skate park. Black people have told me I talk white before, like, I don't know like what it means to like talk white or talk black. Yeah. They be saying I talk white. I get pissed off. They only do because my mom's white, you know, so I have to speak respectable. And they think since I'm black, I have to act ghetto and be stupid. I guess talking white would be like, I don't know. Like, I want to say like speaking proper, I guess, like, like how most white people talk or most normal people talk, you know? This conversation got me interested in talking to someone whose job depends on his voice. I'm Joshua Johnson. I'm the morning newscaster for KQED Public Radio. Johnson's been in radio for years. He's African-American, and he sounds pretty similar when he's on the air. It's Morning Edition on KQED. I'm Joshua Johnson. And when he's talking with me in person. Is this your radio voice? This is my voice. This is your voice. So is your People ask me that a lot. They're like, do your radio voice. I'm like, have we not been talking for 15 minutes? This is it. You know, my goal on the radio is to sound like me. I don't want to sound like the news anchor who is enunciating the headlines at you. But Johnson says he has experienced surprise reactions when people realize he's black. We did a show about race and diversity in Silicon Valley. And somewhere in the show I mentioned that I'm African-American. I forget what the context was, but somewhere in the show I mentioned it. And I got an email from a listener who basically wrote, I never would have guessed that you were black. Johnson says he doesn't let these reactions about his race really bother him. Like me, he's heard it all. The patronizing tone. You're so articulate. You speak so well. But Johnson thinks this ignorance can also be a lesson in disguise to show us assumptions we often make about race. Did you respond to that? I did. I did. I told him it was a very good thing that you as a white person have to stop looking at me as a black person as other and presume that I sound like everybody on BET. I asked Johnson if he'd ever been accused of sounding white when he was growing up. He tells me that he not only heard the accusation, but he grew up with black adults insinuating that it was preferable. To sound white was to sound high quality. In my hometown of West Palm Beach, Florida, I remember the choir director, Ms. Richardson, said, I want you to sound so good that if I put you on stage behind a curtain and had you sing to the audience, everyone would swear you were white. To sound professionally marketable or quote-unquote proper, it's the goal most parents and teachers set out for kids. I mean, saying the word ain't in my house would warrant a side glare from mom that was just as bad as a spanking. Johnson says he was very aware of this as a child. I always knew there was something blessed and something cursed about the way I spoke. 
I knew that it would open doors for me. And I knew that none of my friends was behind those doors. But what is it about the fear of those doors closing because of the way we sound? There's actually a name for it. It's called linguistic profiling, a term coined by Professor John Baugh, a PhD at Stanford University. He did a study where he selected five racially diverse cities in the Bay Area to inquire about housing for rent. First, he called using an African-American accent. May I help you? Yes, my name is Michael Davis. I was calling to see if you might have any houses for rent that might be available. Then he called again, this time with a Latino accent. Hello, this is Juan Ramirez. I'm calling about the apartment you have advertised in the paper. With these accents, Ball was told nothing was available. But when he switched to what he called a neutral accent, he was often invited to see the properties. I was linguistically profiled recently. I was working on a story that involved a support group for African Americans. Many of them had a criminal record. At first, they seemed very open to being interviewed, but then they turned cold. Days turned into weeks of messages without a return phone call. When we finally met, one of the coordinators laughed. I would have gotten back to you sooner if I would have known you were Black. And although we both laughed together about her comment, I had a moment of deflation, like eating that corn dog alone at lunch. But as for my voice, whether it works to my advantage or not, it's just the one I got. For Cross Currents, I'm Leela Day. Leela reported that piece in 2015. Since then, Joshua Johnson has left KQED and now produces his own show, The Nightlight with Joshua Johnson. Today's Cross Currents team includes Pat McMahon, Molly Blair Salyer, James Rollins, Ganadi Joe Johnson, Victor Tense, Shirin Adil, Lisa Morehouse, Angela Johnston, Marissa Ortega Welch, Sunni Khalid, and Ben Trefney. Our opening theme music is by the John Santos Quintet, as interpreted by Daoud Anthony. For Cross Currents, I'm Hanat Baba. Mm-hmm.